Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm Samantha Lom, the host of the channel. Today... everybody, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm Samantha Lom, the host of the channel. Today we're going to be talking to Artemy Kalinovsky, the author of Laboratory of Socialist Development, Cold War Politics and Decolonization in Soviet Tajikistan. So Artemy, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me on the show, first of all. And um, yeah, I'm a uh senior lecturer in East European Studies at the University of Amsterdam, where I've been based for uh, about eight years. Um, I did my PhD at the London School of Economics, and uh, that became my first book, uh, Along Goodbye, The Soviet Withdrawal from Afghanistan, came out in 2011. It was actually my first interview with the uh, New Books Network um, uh, in 2011. Um, and then since then, uh, I've done a number of little things, but I've been working on primarily on, on this book that just came out, um, which is, yeah, which I guess is what we'll be talking about today. <laughs> so uh, you write in this book, for example, that Uzbek and Tajik communists were very important in supporting Khrushchev after the war. Would you like to elaborate a little bit about their increased role? Well, sure. I think, um, you know, one thing that, that uh, happened, of course, you know, the terror wiped out an entire kind of generation of, of local uh, leadership and intellectual elites. Um, and uh, by the time that uh, Khrushchev is consolidating power, there's a newer generation that's uh, that's come in, and he's building, I think, coalitions all over the Soviet Union, both you know, kind of within the ministries, but also within the republics and, and within uh, the regions. Um, and so he also kind of establishes uh, relationships with with uh, these uh, individuals. Um, and I think he, you know, his style of politics is very different from his predecessors also in the sense that he goes there a lot. He goes, he meets them, he goes on, you know, field visits uh, with these guys. And, and, and he also takes them abroad, you know, when he goes on these international trips um, and he brings them to Moscow. Um, and I, I, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say that, you know, they play a crucial role in his consolidation of power, um, but they are by looking at the way that they, uh, Khrushchev and, and these Central Asian leaders relate to each other, you can kind of see um, the style of Soviet politics, I think, changing in the 1950s and early 1960s. And that, of course, then has real consequences also for, um, you know, how much room uh, these republic-level uh, leaders have to kind of pursue their own initiatives or to resist initiatives coming from Moscow. So how did the development goals in Tajikistan fit with the broader goals of the USSR and also the U.S. and World Bank, which they were projecting onto the developing world? You talk about NEREC, the TVA, and the Hellman Dam projects? Uh, yeah. Well, as far as, I mean, as far as the USSR is concerned, um, you know, Central Asia, or let's say 
um, Uzbekistan in particular, but also uh, Tajikistan and, and to a lesser extent, and Turkmenistan to a lesser extent, Kyrgyzstan and parts of southern Kazakhstan. Um, in the late 1920s, they got the assigned the role of, of cotton production. Of course, cotton production uh, has already been developed substantially in the late Tsarist era uh, and the early Soviet period, but but in the kind of five-year plans, the idea is that these regions will massively expand uh, cotton production, uh, and then uh, that'll be their kind of primary contribution, uh, at least for for you know the coming uh, five-year plans. And of course, they're still trying to talk about eventually industrializing the region and doing other things there. Um, and so, in the 1950s, Khrushchev, of course has no, uh, you know, he has no interest in getting rid of the cotton production because, in fact, he needs the cotton uh, to fulfill his commitment on, for example, you know, producing more consumer goods and so forth. Um, but he does listen to people, including local communists, who say, okay, but if we're just producing cotton that's being processed elsewhere and we don't really have a lot of other industry um then, you know, that's a very colonial kind of relationship, right? We're producing, you know, this is a... Uh, a a primary kind of uh, agricultural resource that's being uh, processed elsewhere. That's not unlike uh, the relationship that, you know, Britain or, or France had with their colonies. Um, and so that's one of the arguments, maybe not even the most important one, but it's one of the arguments that's being used um, to encourage Moscow to invest in industrialization in the region. And, but there's two also more kind of, let's say, economic arguments. Uh, one is that the region has uh, a rapidly growing population. And so in the wake of the Second World War, uh, we know, and, and of course, and the terror and, and, uh, and, and the uh, starvation uh, after collectivization. So after all of these things, we know that in the European parts of the USSR, um, the population is, growth is really slowing down and it's even going to start stagnating. And but 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 local uh, planners are saying is look, but we have a booming population. You can use this to develop new industries, um, and then eventually, of course, uh, as you go towards industrialization, the standard of living locally is going to rise as people will become uh, kind of more modern, really see themselves as part of the Soviet uh, Union, and so forth. So these kind of ideological and economic um, uh, projects uh, go together. Uh, and then there's the question of energy. So uh, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan in particular are um, hydropower uh, or that they have enormous hydropower potential because they're mountainous and, and they have these very powerful rivers. Um, and in, in the 50s, it's still kind of the heyday of great dam building. This is, of course, when the Soviet Union is building uh, the Aswan Dam or helping build the Aswan Dam in Egypt. Um, and they've already, there's, there've already been explorations of the, the, the big rivers in Tajikistan in an earlier period. Um, and, and now this information is used to kind of push for major dam construction, which, you know, on the one hand will irrigate even more fields for cotton, but on the other hand will also uh, provide electrification for these new industries, including very energy hungry things like uh, an, an aluminum plant and a chemical plant that's, that's built in the decades uh, that follow. So in that sense, you know, uh, people who advocate for these things can make, uh, the argument that yes, this is this is about our local needs, but this is also about something that the Soviet Union uh, as a whole uh, requires. And by the way, that electricity is eventually fed into a grid uh, that covers all of Central uh, Asia, uh, or let's say the four republics in southern Kazakhstan. Now, in terms of uh, how that works with uh, Western development um, uh, initiatives, um, I draw a kind of parallel, and not necessarily kind of a direct connection, but a parallel between. 
what the Soviet Union does and then what the United States is doing um, first in its own kind of projects uh, in uh, uh, during the Great Depression. So most famously, of course, the TVA, right? Also about taking a what's seen as a backward region economically uh, and even socially and making it more modern through these kind of big um, dam projects, opening up new land, uh, but also electrification, in new towns, industrialization and so forth. Um, and then that confidence that comes from doing that uh, in, the, in the U.S. also stimulates or, or yeah, it stimulates um, the way that the United States does uh, aid abroad uh, in the post-war era. Um, and and uh, one of the examples I bring up is the Hellman Valley uh, Authority, which is you know, geographically very, very close to Nurek. I mean, if you were kind of passing over in an airplane, um, I think, you know, it's probably less than an hour from one uh, to the other. And here the U.S. from the late 1940s has a very similar kind of project. It's, it's you know, it's another one of these kind of Tennessee Valley Authority style um, projects. But what I, what I um, try to do in the book, uh, however briefly, and, and on the U.S. side, I'm completely drawing on um, secondary sources and uh, some wonderful historians of, of the United States and of U.S. foreign policy, um, uh, is to look also at the way that um, the say the politics and, and other social conditions kind of shape these projects. So one of the things that historians of the TVA have written about is the way that um, these projects, uh, you know, were intended to help everybody, but then you had to form political coalitions to get these projects built and those political coalitions in the context of kind of, um, you know, the uh, Jim Crow South and American uh, kind of racism and so forth basically meant that they benefit uh white farmers uh, much, much more than black farmers. Black farmers continue to be uh, excluded uh, from from these projects and also from these new towns where they're only kind of given land or, or housing on the margins uh, and so forth. And of course, in the, in the myth of the TVA, that aspect of it is, uh, tends to be forgotten. Um, and, and then, uh, of course, when these projects are taken abroad, it's the myth that's taken abroad, not necessarily, I think, the lessons of, of the um, say the problematic aspects of this project. And you see that in the Helmut Valley Authority where uh, the United States, or let's say the, the people who support this project think, okay, again, this is not just about providing water and electricity, but this is also about changing social relations and giving kind of poor peasants land and so forth. But of course, to get this done, they need the support of local elites. And in the end, they're the, those local elites end up benefiting from this project um, and, uh, and those poor peasants uh, much less so. Um, and then in the Soviet Union, I think something interesting happens, which is that there are also big irrigation projects in the 1930s, um, and they're famously disastrous uh, environmentally, socially, and economically. They don't really live up to their promise. And I think what you see, although nobody states this uh, explicitly, is that with the Nurek Dam, and, and I think to an extent with other projects as well, um, there. First of all, I mean, there's some of the same people are involved, some of the same engineers. Um, but I think there's also a realization of, you know, we can't keep doing things this way. I mean, of course, we can't rely on terror to mobilize people and, and to punish them and so forth. But also we can't, you know, try to fulfill, uh, you know, a 20-year project in a five-year period or a five-year project in a one-year period. And what you see with NUREC is that it's, it's even after it's approved, it's a much slower process. There's a lot more kind of exploration, testing, stopping, going back to the drawing board. It's economically maybe not very inefficient, 
Um, but it leads for a much, you know, much more uh, kind of successful construction project in the end. And it has interesting knock-on effects, which is that it forces uh, the construction organizations to take their social commitments more seriously, right? So originally they kind of promised to build this dam in, in uh, I think, five to seven years. Um, and they try to think of the quickest way to do that. Well, the quickest way to do that is to bring in kind of experienced workers from around the Soviet Union, get them there, build the dam, get out. Um, and then it becomes clear that that's not going to be possible um, uh, and, and that some of these workers have no interest in staying. Well, they have to do two things. One, they have to build a city that is actually going to make it pleasant for them to stay. But two, they also realize they need to take um, the kind of local labor force uh, much more seriously. And so they start paying a lot more attention to the recruitment of the local labor force, um, to training the local labor force, uh, and even to providing social welfare uh, goods, you know, in the form of, uh, you know, everything like from schools to healthcare clinics to roads and running water and all these things um, to the local population. So in a way, this is a kind of, you know, you could say an atonement or at the very least, you know, lesson learned from, from the Stalinist era. So how do the locals who participated in dam construction view themselves and the process? You know, I, this was uh, in some ways the most interesting, the most challenging part of the research was actually trying to understand how this looked uh, from a local perspective. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time uh, going around uh, Nurek in particular and, and the villages that surround it, um, doing interviews with, with people who either had worked on the dam or maybe in, in some of the projects around the city and the dam or, or uh, in some way been affected by it. Um, and of course, you know, uh, what I found is people still, uh, especially people who really took part in this project, um, still carry kind of a very strong sense of pride about what they had participated in. Uh, it doesn't mean they were completely uncritical of the Soviet Union or, or of, you know, of the past, but they really saw themselves as, as kind of becoming, um, um, becoming who they were through their work on the project and, and saw the project as contributing um, to their community and so on. And, and, and people seem very actually reluctant to talk about any resistance to the project or unhappiness with the project, but um, but it would slip in, um, and um, you, could, you would find out about you know what would, uh, kind of situations where managers seemed reluctant to to hire locals, or um, the, the way that, uh, for example, uh, social welfare goods seemed to go to uh, the workers in the city who were primarily not Tajik, although there were quite a few. Um, from outside that particular region who were living in the city as well. Um, and then to the villages, and that caused uh, kind of uh, resentment uh, as well. But it was, it was uh, striking how hard it was to penetrate that kind of narrative of um, kind of heroic construction and self-construction. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's several reasons. I mean, I think um, one reason that absolutely cannot be discounted is, is Tajikistan's particular experience with the post-1991 era, which is um, after 1990, um, you know, after independence, Tajikistan very quickly uh, descends into a civil war um, uh, without kind of going into all the details of it. Um, it, it it's quite... Uh, a bloody war and, and the wreck itself, by the way, is actually taken and retaken by, by different sides uh, during this conflict. And so, you know, and then 
naturally, you know, whatever your opinion of the Soviet Union may have been in 1991, you know, it's not it's not hard to imagine that after the Civil War, you think, wow, whatever, whatever happened back then must was definitely better than than what we've had uh, now. And of course, it's it's remained quite poor in the post-Civil War era. It's peaceful, but but uh, remained quite poor in the post-Civil War era. But even so, so that element of nostalgia, I think, you know, it has to um, it has to be taken into account. But even that having been said, I do think, and I and I, I make an argument for this in the book that, um, you know, well, that, that, sorry, that's one thing. And the, and the other side of it, of course, for, for the lack of resistance, is we do have to remember that Stalinism, the Stalin era, casts a very long shadow. Um, so, you know, the, we never would see kind of armed resistance against Soviet rule there in in the in the post-Stalin era, but that's partially because I think the violence of the Stalin era precludes any kind of open, uh, not just armed, but any kind of open resistance to Soviet rule. But that, those qualifications aside, I do think these people experienced construction as something very exciting, as something very empowering. Um, you know, they would talk about the, the kind of, um, the, the, the sense of the sense of strength that they would get from learning how to operate, you know, a complicated uh, crane, right, or a uh, a complicated uh, you know, a large uh, dump truck, right? These things that seem quite banal, but you realize that these are actually you know machines that are difficult to use, and 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 learning to kind of gain mastery over that is 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 quite something. And and some of them then go on to. Um, get even higher qualifications. Some of them become brigade leaders and some of them are going to actually go on to become engineers. And so the sense of kind of being able to really develop yourself, but also to develop your community and do something for uh, Tajikistan as a whole, which um, these workers are really encouraged to think of themselves in that way, right? That they're developing themselves, but they're also doing something for their immediate community. And they're also doing something for a country large. And then particularly those, those workers who, you know, did really well. So, you know, ones who became brigade leaders or engineers or managers, um, they became kind of intermediaries between these construction organizations and the low and the kind of uh, party apparatus within the rec city and their village communities. And so when, you know, if the village wanted something built, if the village, uh, you know, still didn't have running water, they were often in a position to lobby uh, these construction organizations to, divert some resources, divert some uh, specialists to getting that done. And that also, uh, of course, raised their own social capital, and it also gave them a feeling of empowerment. And I think, um, again, they compare that, of course, to the post-Soviet period, I think, where they, you know, it's very hard to get the state to actually do any of these things. So in, in retrospect, of course, perhaps they, they see that as, you know, a period where the state had to listen to them um, and and did things for, for their benefit. One of the things you mentioned that I thought was very interesting was that in post-war Tajikistan, the local officials, the local communists actually tried to use traditional family and social structures, in particular to engage women in education and industry, as opposed to this more Stalinist era or earlier unveiling campaigns and stuff where they fought against local social structure how did they do this and why yeah well i think you know this is not something that um becomes an official policy but at the local level so i I tried to understand you know how do they actually what's actually the process of recruiting people from the villages um and there's a problem kind of throughout central asia that, that economists who 
had made this argument about uh, using the large labor force face, which is that by the late by the late sixties, it's becoming obvious that actually a lot of this rural labor force doesn't actually seem that interested in in joining these uh, industries that are being built, and they have to go out and, and, and kind of engage in sociology and even some anthropology to figure out why. Um, and and what to do about it and and you know they have different uh, ideas which I talk about in the book but then at the local level um, uh, in the, the people who are dealing with this on a day to day basis are these construction managers you know party officials uh, etc and of course they know that they're not supposed to you know reinforce the patriarchal family right they're not supposed to go to uh, the head of a large kind of household and ask him for permission, you know, for a son or daughter to join um, the dam or to join a, a, a kind of, uh, there's this, um, uh, a, a branch of a sewing factory that that's set up uh, in the town, uh, particularly to provide jobs for women. But they, but they realize that these, this is just the way things work. Right. And that if you want to recruit uh People, you have to deal with the family, right? That's family opposition. Uh, and you have to try to convince them. Um, and I think, you know, people who are from the area play an important role in explaining to these officials that, you know, this is how it works. That this is a reality we have to deal with. Um, and so uh, what they try to do is to actually go and, and, and talk to uh, these, these uh, you know, heads of families and kind of explain you know, um, especially in the case of the sewing factory, you say, look, um, women will be working mostly alongside women, you know, and, and will provide transport and, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's kind of one way. Um, another way is, is simply through um, kind of getting people to, to recruit from their own extended family, right? So, and, and this is part of the reason that you create these local heroes. You know? it's, it's to show that, look, this is somebody just like you. Um, you know, he was also, you know, a shepherd or, or you know, a, a farmer or whatever. Um, but uh, he wanted to join and, you know, he got an education and now he has a higher salary and he's doing all these great things. And he's still a family person, right? So he's also fulfilling traditional obligations. Um, and, and, and so the kind of ideological apparatus would use that, but they would also then directly encourage them to go and talk to a cousin and say, hey, you know, we need more people, um, you know, in this brigade, or we need more people, uh, you know, uh, driving these trucks, you know, can you round up some young men and see if any of them are interested in, in getting trained. You also talk about how local Tajik workers use the social capital they get from being model workers or, um, you know, trained crane drivers or something to get compromises that they probably shouldn't have had, such as fasting at Ramadan. And you say such actions are not really evading the rules. Why would you say that? <laughs> yeah, well, um, they're, they're, it's an interesting thing that happens. I mean, they, they recruit these people um, and uh, they're, of course, interested in retaining this labor and, and they live, you know, almost alongside them. I mean, the, the managers and, and, and these locals. Um, and, of course, they have to negotiate all of these kind of things. Like, what what is, okay, this is a, you know, a communist labor session. What does that mean? You know, on the one hand, we should be promoting this communist ideology. Um, but on the other hand, uh you know, these people saying, well, this is our way of life. And, and so you always have to kind of find, find the boundaries um, of what is acceptable. And one of the arguments that, that gets made by people who insist on, you know, uh, for example, fasting during Ramadan is actually, uh, look, the law says that there's freedom of religion in the Soviet Union. 
Yeah. And and um, there's a it's interesting because I, I got this information through uh, oral history and a little indirectly also through archival work. Um, but there is also a novelization of this uh, by by a writer who spent time uh, at the dam, and and uh, he describes these discussions in a way that that, that was very familiar. And you know, and uh, ultimately one of the the kind of characters who's come to investigate this case of, of workers fasting during Ramadan uh, says, well, look, the fact that they know the letter of the law, the fact that they know their rights according to the Soviet constitution is actually a great achievement because it means they're becoming Soviet citizens, right? So actually we should, you know, we should let this happen. This is okay. This is part of them uh, becoming Soviet. Um, and there are actually some quite similar discussions that I found in the party records about about individual workers who've been rumored to be, uh, even communist members of the party who are, who are rumored to be uh, religious. And so I think this is something that you would never, you know, you would never see a, you know, an article in a, in a social newspaper saying, you know, it's okay, you know, you can go and do this. But as a local, uh, as a local kind of uh, adjustment as, as local um, kind of working out of how you make this socialist state uh, work, uh, it, it kind of makes sense. So how compatible in general was being a Muslim and a Soviet citizen or party member in Tajikistan? Um, I think it depended on where you were and also on, um, well, you know, how you defined uh, uh, being uh, a Muslim. I mean, I think, again, if you were the first secretary of the Communist Party of Tajikistan and Dushanbe, or even if you were kind of, uh, if you have any kind of position of responsibility there, um, any kind of religious practice would probably be frowned upon if, uh, if, you know, if it was found out. But I think at the local level, there was a lot more that was tolerated. Um, and I mean, uh, people have heard about this in other contexts. It could be attributed to kind of national traditions rather than Islamic ones. Other things, of course, you couldn't write off as national traditions. Uh, fasting, for example, uh, being one of them. Maybe that was seen as very much a religious one. Um, but it seems that at the local level, you know, it was a question of um, kind of weighing uh, your contribution versus your, um, let's say, uh, uh, your 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 um, violation of, of kind of ideals about uh, socialist uh, atheism, right? So so somebody who was seen as a good worker and a great model for others and um, and engaged in in party politics and, and committed to the project had quite a bit of leeway um, to to. Or pursue kind of you know to pray and 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 uh, maybe even to to, to fast during Ramadan. Um, I, I bring the case up of somebody who, uh, beyond all the things I just mentioned, was also a Second World War veteran, um, and he was very insistent on this, and and he saw these things as completely compatible, right? I mean, could, could there were people who say that you know these things are completely incompatible, but it's interesting to me that these people spoke about it as something that they were able to combine uh, quite well. Um, it's not a completely kind of uh, happy story, of course, because these kind of things could also be used against you if you ever developed an enemy within the local party organization. And I, I bring up a kind of case uh, of that as well, right? Because uh, officially this was, as a communist, something you were not supposed to be doing. And if somebody wanted to get you demoted in the party or, or get you kicked out of the party, they could try to use this against you. 
I noticed that when you did a lot of the oral interviews, too, a lot of people took great pride in being Komsomol members. They still kept their Komsomol party tickets. Um, how important was the Komsomol in providing opportunities for young people in Tajikistan? Well, that's a good question. Um, I didn't I didn't research the Komsomol uh, individually as an organization um, either. Uh, I did a little bit in the case of, in the case of them, but not but not really uh, in very much depth. Um, I think it it. it it's remembered as an organization that helped people, um, uh, help people, you know, get their, you know, uh, get to university or get to, um, you know, get to a career. And it was certainly seen um, by party members as well as economic planners as playing an important role in reaching out to this rural youth and uh, and getting, you know, kind of communicating to them that they had these opportunities that they should take advantage of them. Of, of helping them logistically in terms of, you know, either getting to getting to university, getting to you know a city to take exams for the university or, or whatever. Um, at the same time, I would say that what my oral histories actually show, I think, is that uh, yes, the Komsomol sometimes plays this role, but in a way, these informal family networks, at least at, at that level, let's say within uh, UREC, uh, are sometimes even more important, right? So it's this. Uh, the idea that somebody from your own uh, extended family or even from your own village could serve as a role model and could show you how this was done and why that was a good thing. That's what really kind of um, uh, played a big role in getting people to, to you know, actually join one of the work sites. If I remember correctly, though, you have examples of at least women, and I think maybe a, me- a couple of men, where the Komsomol actually acts as an interlocutor. They take them away from very conservative parents who are against them studying, against them going to university, against them going out into the larger world, and provide them with opportunities. Do you think this was common? No, I actually don't think it was. Well, uh, there's one case I bring up of, of somebody who was really kind of uh, taken away. Um, and and that, that's a bit of a more complicated story. I mean, this is a young lady who is in love with a worker who is also a Komsomol member. And he kind of mobilizes the Komsomol to help her escape from her family and also to get her um, into a technical college and to get training and, uh, and so forth. Um, and then apparently later she does eventually uh, reconcile with her uh, with her parents, but I think that st- that story is probably an exception because, um, especially local party members would rec- recognize that you know if you do this, you're actually going to upset your relations with with uh, people uh, with with local people. Um, so the more common thing I think was uh, you could you could appeal to the Komsomol, right? You could certainly uh, Komsomol. You could invite somebody from the Komsomol, especially if they were also happen to be somebody from your own village or at least from the area. To come and you know they might come and talk to your family to kind of explain you know why it would be good for you to to uh, join the work site or, or get an education, um, um, but but to actually directly kind of help you know take somebody away I think in the in the post-Stalin era at least that was not something that was widely practiced. Okay, you talk about larger Soviet modernization projects impact on village life. What was that, and how did people react to these modernization projects? Um, well, I talk about yeah. So one of the things that's happening in parallel to this industrialization project is also, uh, and this is of course not limited to Central Asia. This is happening across the Soviet Union. It's kind of renewed commitment to improving the quality of life on. Um, uh, in the rural areas, so on the collective farms throughout the Soviet Union, and, and uh, 
the Brezhnev era from the middle six, mid sixties onwards, you see actually quite uh, some resources that are committed to this. Interesting thing is that, of course, as with a lot of things, that the concern, um, let's say from a economic and demographic point of view in Central Asia and Russia is quite different. In Russia, the problem is that people are fleeing uh, the collective farms and you're trying to improve the standards of living there to get people to actually stay and work on them. Uh, in Central Asia, the problem you have is reverse, which is people that tend to stay on the farm. But the argument that's being made there is, look, we had assumed that um, people will join industries and get a new level of culture and that's how they'll become modern Soviet subjects. Uh, but they're not moving. So what we need to do is actually first raise the level of culture on the farm or in the rural areas, and then they will uh, they will want to uh, come and join you know other aspects of, of uh, Soviet modernity, right? university. When you say yeah. culture, what yeah. exactly does that mean? That's a very good question because that means so many things in the Soviet context. So uh, it means on the one hand things like uh, you know, cultured, uh, cultured life in the sense of having electricity to, to, uh, to uh, light your home. And it means having running water and, and so forth, sewage. Um, but it also means culture in the more familiar sense of having um, spaces where you can have uh, amateur theater and, uh, and uh, a small library um, and uh, different kinds of you know, organizations for school children and so forth. Uh, and of course, having schools and, and having access to the cultural life of the capital and having newspapers and, you know, and, and the party goes out and, and tries to kind of record, you know, how many newspapers are, are families getting and what, what are they making use of, of these facilities and so forth. So uh, culture there is understood as, as kind of being all of these things. But in a practical sense, it means that the state has to invest in going out and and um, and actually getting these things uh, built and staffed and, and uh, so on. Um, and how do people react to that? Well, the interesting thing is you see people um, on the farm, or at least people who claim to speak for, for these rural uh, villages, um, they, uh, they try to attract the resources to do a lot of these things. So you see, of course, also that some of these uh, some of these facilities get reappropriated and, and um, of course you have plenty of cases, it's documented by other historians as well, of culture clubs uh, uh, being repurposed as uh, prayer, prayer spaces. I think in some cases they're, they're serving both purposes. They really are acting as a kind of Soviet culture space, but they're also being used as, as uh, for prayer. Um, and, and I think usually local party organizations were perfectly aware of this and, and again saw this as a kind of you know a decent compromise um, that was you know uh, good in the long run. Uh, but of course, that's not the beginning and the end of it because then you have um, in the context of Tajikistan, uh, less so maybe a little bit in some of the other republics, um, you have this question of what to do with villages that are in far-flung places. Right. So in, in the case of Jigsaw, that has to do with uh, altitude, you know, for villages that are really high up on the mountains. Um, because on the one hand, you need more labor. You know, the, the, there was hope that uh, there was, since the late 40s, there was kind of an assumption that sooner or later cotton would be cotton harvesting would be largely mechanized and you wouldn't need a lot of this labor in the farms anymore. In fact, that's what happens in the American South. Uh, but for a complicated set of reasons, which I discussed in the book, it doesn't happen uh, in Soviet Central Asia, although there is quite a lot of investment in producing machines that should make it happen. So you have this constant need for labor that's available uh, for the kind of 
growing and harv- the harvesting uh, season especially. And you can use casual labor or uh, let's say mobilized labor from schools and, and factories and so forth. But you also want to have some, you also want to have people around. And so you see that collective farms actually uh, in the lowlands, uh, they actually lobby to have villages from higher altitudes move down into the collective farm so that they can make use of their labor. Um, but you also see officials from the welfare state, uh, in some cases, throwing up their kind of hands and saying, look, uh, we have to, you know, provide this and this and this and this for this village, but it's very, very difficult to get it up there and to support it up there. It would make more sense to actually bring this village kind of uh, somewhere else where it's closer to all of these uh, facilities, right, rather than kind of spending all these resources on getting it there. So that's kind of a flip side. And what you find is that, um, of course, uh, the conditions uh, for for these families and, and these villages when they resettle are often, uh, you know, not nearly what they've been promised. Uh, the climactic conditions are often very different, um, and um, and the the way they resist this is basically by going back to where they came from, um, and there, this becomes apparently quite widespread, it becomes so widespread that, that I, I found, you know, these kind of blank forms that officials have produced where you just have to fill in, you know, which kind of village people had escaped from and, and, uh, and where they have presumably gone. But there were also then kind of uh, inspections carried out that showed that people had gone back to their uh, villages uh, in the mountains and were living there basically out of the control of the state. The kids uh, were not going to school. There were the state that didn't even know how many people were there. They weren't registered for uh, military service and so on and so forth. So they, uh, and they, and they kind of were making use of the land there. As it, that reminds me of the Hooter problem in European Russia. Um, I study Kirov, and in the 1930s, that's one of the big goals in this sparsely populated, densely forested region is to resettle these single-family or two- or three-family Hooters so you can provide them with uh, these services, put them on a collective farm, but also know where they are, what they're doing, and make sure that they're you know integrating into the state. Yeah, and I think it's probably a, a kind of common feature of many, you know, development plans. Um, I think this is James Scott wrote about this also in his early work about uh, um, how villagers kind of escape these either, uh, you know, landlord-inspired uh, plans or, or state plans. Um, so I, I think it's probably a common feature of, of, of how the, at least the 20th century state envisions kind of improving the peasant population and how the peasant population uh, responds. So in your opinion, what were the major successes and the major failures of Soviet modernization in Tajikistan? Yeah, well, these are two words that I actually have tried to get away from. Um, um, Because one of the things you realize in studying development projects is that, uh, you know, the, the... on the one hand, even when the initial plans are not met, that doesn't mean there hasn't been change. And that doesn't even mean that there hasn't been change that's been seen as a positive in a positive way. Right. So, for example, uh, you know, you could take something like the Narek Dam and say, well, they promised to build it in five years or seven years and it took them 20. That's a failure. That's an enormous waste of resources and time. Right. But that failure to get it built in five years is actually what made it possible to create this welfare state around uh, Narek and to actually mobilize some of the local workers and get them involved in these projects and, and so on and so forth, which is actually part of a larger success, you could say. Uh, about, you know, which, which the Soviet Union was aiming at, right? Um, 
That's just kind of a small example. Um, so none of them were failures of the 1930s irrigation scheme level? No, nothing like that. Though, on the other hand, all of these projects had their own environmental consequences, some of them uh, quite dire. I mean, you know, uh, large dams are, are incredibly damaging for, for rivers and for um, uh, for wildlife, but also for the soil. I mean, because what happens is you, you know, in a lot of writing about this dam, you people talk about, you know, how clean the river becomes. And it's very true. If you look at the river kind of further upstream, it's quite murky and, and it's, it's, it's quite, uh, it's quite a powerful flow. And then you look at it beyond the dam and it's this beautiful, clear uh, water. But what that means is that also a lot of the nutrients that that river carries and wash that, that are supposed to wash up on the soil, they're being blocked up further upstream. And so if you want to grow something in that soil further downstream, you need to start bringing in fertilizer uh, which ends up being a lot of chemical fertilizer, which then seeps into, um, you know, the drinking water, and that has health consequences. So there's all these these knock-on consequences that's not limited to Central Asia or even to the Soviet Union. This is true uh, in many other places as well. Um, and then, of course, this whole cotton mania is also what contributes to the drying up of the Aral Sea, um, which becomes a, a problem that people are very aware of by by the 1970s. Um, and these, of course, industrial projects they also um, they also carry uh, major environmental consequences. In fact, one of the things that I talk about in the book is, um, you know, I think sometimes we have this this uh, kind of sense that the Soviet Union simply didn't care about the environment. Um, and what I found is that actually there's a lot of concern about this, both from state officials and, and from uh, local people uh, as well. But um, but the, the way they, of course, again, they have to reconcile different things. They have to reconcile, you know, keeping up the production and getting this done um, and, and, and trying to uh, control um, the environmental consequences or limit the environmental consequences. Um, and they put a lot of faith in, you know, in kind of technical planning, right? They say, well, we have, you know, these great maps of, of water usage and canals, and then we should be able to control how much water is being used to see that not too much is being used to make sure that the factories are purifying their waste before it, uh, um, and so on. And, uh, but what they actually find is that, um, you know, at the local level, there's a lot of, you know, water, um, uh, canals are being rerouted and, and local ones are being dug to make use of water uh, without it ever being registered anywhere. They have almost no way to control how that water is being used within the collective farm. And that makes them start thinking about, um, you know, kind of a pricing reform, right? To find a price at which, um, you know, the collective farms would actually have to pay for the water they use that they stop wasting it. Uh, but that, of course, is something that the collective farms resist because they have to, they already feel like they have enough to do just trying to kind of meet these production quotas. Um, and so, you know, in the longer sense, of course, I think, yeah, maybe it's not a failure, but it has these uh, kind of negative uh, consequences. Well, objectively, let's say negative consequences. And there are other things which uh, I think it depends a little bit on your uh, perspective. I mean, I think, you know, if we come at it from the point of view of, uh, let's say, you know, a very liberal perspective and say, well, you know, did, did, you know, did the state provide real freedom of religion? Did it provide real freedom of conscience? And no, of course not. Right. And, and uh, uh, in that sense, the Soviet Union was a failure. But, um, you know, did it give people a sense of empowerment? Um, I think in many cases it did. 
So you also talk about how these negative consequences of the development effort in general start showing up and start changing the whole dialogue about development in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s. How did the dialogue about development globally shift and how did that impact on Tajikistan? Mm -hmm. Right. So one of the things I try to do in the book is to to draw this parallel between uh, development uh, thought and, and paradigms in the Soviet Union and abroad. Um, and, I, and I think they follow this, this surprisingly kind of similar trajectory. And chronologically, it matches up well um, in kind of a faith in, in big infrastructure projects and also in mobilizing uh, rural labor or uh, yeah, rural labor for industrialization in the 1950s to increasing kind of skepticism in the 60s, concern about the environment also in the 70s, uh, much kind of greater realization of the way that uh, – gender uh, plays into this. So, so um, you know, what these projects mean for women, um, but also ways in which they're left out and which ways in which um, development could be reconfigured in a way that, that uh, took kind of women's role, uh, more uh, women's roles more seriously and, and, uh, and kind of was based on the reality of their lives rather than on kind of more abstract plans. Um, I think what happens in the Soviet Union also, though, is that um, in the so, so as a result of the kind of facing these 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 problems, um, Soviet social scientists uh, turn to, to, as I said earlier, turn to sociology and, and, and even to an extent toward ethnography to, to studying these rural populations. And it's local scholars who do most of this work. And what they're finding is, you know, um, you know, the values of these people are uh, quite different in the sense that they do these surveys and people say, and they ask them, well, uh, you know, how highly do you rate, you know, working in a factory or versus staying in the village or having a large family versus getting an education. And it turns out actually, you know, women, but also men, um, seem to have these quite traditional uh, goals and don't seem all that inspired by uh, the Soviet, uh, what the Soviet Union is, is, is offering. And the interesting thing is the local communists and the local social scientists see this as something that needs to be worked on and they give kind of proposals about better ways to reduce this population. But what you see in the center, um, there's people who agree with this, but from the 80s, uh, you have uh, some social scientists, but also planners who start saying, well, maybe people are just different. Um, you know, maybe uh, Tajiks uh, just prefer this kind of life versus another kind of uh, uh, life. And, and we should stop kind of wasting all this money on building factories and just accept that they prefer handicraft production and farming. Um, and that this is something that local planners actually, uh, for the most part, really resent. Do you feel like that takes on sort of a racist overtone in the dialogue? I kind of got that impression from what you'd written about, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, I think it, it does a little bit. At the very, at the very least, you get a kind of reification of ethnicity, right? So it goes from something that's quite malleable to something that's quite fixed. You, you have this language that appears about, you know, this is, this is just what's natural to these people and this is what they're going to do. Stop trying to change them. Um, and I think that's quite dangerous in the context of the Soviet Union because the whole idea is that, of course, you know, uh, everybody can move through history together. You know, an Uzbek and a Tajik can be a factory worker, an engineer, just as much as a Latvian or a Russian. And if you... 
And, and that's also what justifies kind of keeping the former Russian empire together as one state. Now, if you get rid of that, on the one hand, uh, it means uh, you don't really have that obligation maybe to, to invest uh, in, in, in these areas anymore. But it also means from the point of view of those areas, well, what's still binding us to Moscow, right, if we're so different, right? Why should we still be part of the Soviet Union? And so I think these discourses that appear, and they're never, I would never say that they're dominant, but they become quite influential uh, in, the, in the 80s. Um, I think that they, they play a role directly or indirectly in, in, in how the Soviet Union starts, uh, starts coming uh, apart. And that's something that, that's, um, that's, that's maybe a little bit different from uh, what's going on beyond, uh, beyond the Soviet Union, although you also have these kind of discussions going on um, uh, in other parts of the world and in Western development discourse. And in fact, some of the, some of the Russian um, uh, ethnographers who, who write these things, Yudan Bromley in particular, he cites uh, Western uh, um, economic anthropology uh, to support some of his kind of theoretical points. Uh, the other thing that's worth mentioning is that uh, the Soviet Union and also Central Asian uh, social scientists and, and, and uh, others who are involved in this from the 60s onwards, and particularly from the 1970s, they get uh, involved in quite a few international networks um, because I mean, the Central Asian uh, people are being sent abroad partially to show off, right? To say, okay, look, this is you know how great Central Asia has become as part of the Soviet Union, and these are the kind of great countries we're producing. Um, and so they give lectures uh, at UN seminars, and, and the UN conducts seminars and trainings uh, with the Soviet Union and actually within Central Asia as well, bringing people from all over the world. But that also means that um, whether or not they're citing this in their work, uh, all of these people are very much aware of international um, debates about development. Um, and I never found, you know, aside from some very specific cases, I never found them saying, ah, but look, this is what is being tried out elsewhere. We should try this as well. Um, but the way that these uh, discourses and ideas kind of echo each other uh, makes me think that that kind of interaction did play a role. So what do you think the overall legacy of Soviet development is for Tajikistan? Well, I think... You know, from what I could observe, uh, being there between 2011 and, and 2015, um, is that the expectations uh, about, you know, the expectations about what the state does, uh, what the state owes to uh, to people, what development is, is still very strongly shaped uh, by that Soviet experience, right? So. This idea that, you know, for example, electricity is something that the state should provide and it should be cheap uh, or free or cheap. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just something that uh, the state owes to the population and, and uh, also to rural areas and so forth and medicine and so forth. Of course, in practice, um, a lot of these things are, are, you know, the state is not able to provide or not provide a sufficient quality. But, you know, to, to give you a kind of uh, specific example, you see this uh, whenever the World Bank kind of encourages, as it does elsewhere, you know, the privatization uh, of electricity and raising electricity rates so that they actually reflect the cost of production, um, you know, arguing that you could then use that money to improve uh, the electricity grid and maybe even to create more uh, capacity and so forth. There's always resistance to that. And it's not just because... Um, it's not just because people don't have the money to pay, but I think people's kind of uh, presumptions about, you know, uh, 
these utilities is is still kind of shaped by that uh, by that Soviet legacy. So it, it, that's just one example, but I, I think it, it, it illustrates this quite well. But there's also a very strong um, there's a very strong physical legacy, and, and that's not entirely a positive one. I mean, on the positive side, you could say, look, the Nurek Dam is still working. It's still providing 75% of the country's electricity. And uh, unfortunately, the electricity grid, that uh, the, the kind of exchange between the republics that, that allowed consistent electricity use during the year, fell apart after the Soviet Union fell apart. Um, but it looks like now they're starting to work on ways to rebuild that. Um, but all the negative environmental consequences are still there. And, um, and now that China is becoming uh, a development actor and is building power plants uh, and roads and even some factories, of course, those, those environmental effects, uh, I think, are, are going to become even more pronounced. Well, thank you. I think we've taken up a lot of your time. It just brings me to one last question. What interesting thing are you working on now? What's your next project? Well, I've been uh, I've been interested actually in that. Uh, one of the last questions you asked is is the interaction between um, Soviet development discourses and what's going on internationally. Um, and so I've been trying to uh, do some research and hopefully develop a project on the way that uh, uh, development thought gets reshaped internationally, globally between uh, the late '60s and uh, and the present day by using Central Asia, not just Tajikistan, but also uh, some of the other republics um, as kind of a case study. So looking at the way that people in that period engage with international debates and looking at the people who go abroad, but also looking before and after 1991, because what we see is after 1991, these international organizations come in, um, organizations like the World Bank and, and the, the IMF and the UN Development Program and, and, and others, um, and, and we have this idea, and I think it's quite prevalent in, in writings about development, that when these organizations come in, they just bring in their development plans and try to uh, impose them locally. But what I found um, in, in the case of Central Asia is that a lot of the people who worked for the Soviet uh, in the Soviet context, they were still there after 1991. And so some of the economists I interviewed would show me these papers that they'd written for you know, the UN. Um, and some of the former communist youth people had gone on to... Uh, work in NGOs or start NGOs of their own. Um, and so that leads me to the question of, you know, how do development paradigms actually change across time? How important is uh, kind of the knowledge and the memory of these people um, bringing it into these uh, international organizations? Um, does that feed into how these international organizations over the following decades rethink their approach in other areas uh, as well? That sounds really interesting. Uh, I think we're out of time. So thank you, Artemi, for being on this program. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me.